that you'd be with us in this time, helping us to understand, helping us to, to learn, helping us to grow. Lord, use your word, let it not return void. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the unfortunate things about being human is our tendency to become accustomed and even bored with beautiful and glorious things. They're all around us in this world, and yet their abundance at times makes them mundane. I proposed to Kate at the lookout in Grant. It's this beautiful view from the mountain over the valleys and fields with uh, other mountains in the distance. It's a stunning view. I remember the first time we stopped there after a date and being amazed at the view and being overawed. And Kate said, I forget how beautiful this view is because I pass by it every day. And the same is true for many beautiful and wonderful things. It's true of sunsets and sunrises. It's true of uh, good food. It's true of spring and summer and fall and winter and, and so, so much more. Become become so accustomed to the beauty and glory around us that it becomes commonplace and boring in a sense. And unfortunately, the same is often true for the realities of salvation. And Peter's trying to combat that here and remind his audience of the beauty of this salvation they've received. And there's many ways he can do this, but in this passage, he chooses to focus on the consistency of the Old and New Testaments and how all the glory of the Old Testament is the same glory of the New Testament. He wants his audience to know that this salvation in Christ was always at the center of God's plan. And all of the revelation of the Old Testament is really the revelation of Christ. He's trying to help them open their eyes and help them see a familiar and maybe boring thing as something incredibly precious and awe-inspiring, something that angels long to look into. And so I want to help us do the same this morning as we consider Peter's words here about the Scriptures. My theme this morning is that the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. It's a, a theme I like. A theme I'm passionate about as I teach Old Testament, and one I've mentioned here before. And Adam obviously gave me this text, so you can blame him for playing to my, my what I like. Uh, but it is something I like. It's something I'm passionate about because it's a beautiful source of joy and, uh, for us as Christians. And so what I want to do is walk through three points this morning. I want us to talk about the plan of God the prophets of Christ, and the purpose of the Old Testament. The plan of God, the prophets of Christ, and the purpose of the Old Testament. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, opens up this passage by saying, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He starts by identifying that the prophets of the Old Testament searched and inquired about the grace that was to be ours. Now, when Peter says this, that's not to be read as though Peter is saying that grace is only found in the New Testament, though. No, rather, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, has always been God's plan of salvation. The fulfillment of that and the reality of that grace wasn't seen until the New Testament, but it was always the same plan. The details weren't fully known, and it hadn't been fulfilled yet, But the Old Testament saints were saved in the exact same way that you and I are. That's what the testimony of the New Testament is. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, 
Paul tells us, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, uh, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Paul says, before the world was even formed, God knew what he wanted and knew what he was doing. He predestined us to be in Christ. And now that Christ has come and shed his blood, as Paul says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, this plan he had. And what is this mystery? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians later, explicitly in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says, uh, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says that the mystery that was hidden in previous generations is that Jews and Gentiles are saved together in the same way. That God's plan is to unite the two by faith. The temptation for us today as Gentiles is to imagine that the Old Testament is a foreign document, that it's for Israel, but the New Testament is for us. Now, we might admit there's some cool stuff in there, and we can learn a little from it, but it can, we can be tempted to focus on the new. But both Paul and Peter say no. God's plan has always been the same. Salvation through faith alone and the Messiah alone by grace alone has always been God's plan that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says as well. In Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, the great uh, chapter on faith says that uh, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And he goes on to talk about Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and that these people were saved. They received their commendation through faith and the promises God had made of the Messiah. For Paul, again in Galatians 3, 7 uh, through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all nations be blessed. I love that verse. That the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Not fully, not in complete detail, but really and truly the gospel. And it is those of faith in that gospel, both the Jew and Gentile, who are Abraham's children, who are believers, who are God's people. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. God gave promises and small glimpses of the gospel, and the saints of old heard and trusted that and received their commendation through that, even though they, like us, didn't see Christ. But even though they didn't see him, they loved him and obtained the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls as Peter says in just the verses before that. One of my favorite examples of this uh, is a guy, you may or may not know him. Uh, his name's Lamech. He's in Genesis chapter 5. And he's, uh, he's not super well known, but his son is. You might, you might know him. Thank you, thank you. His son's Noah, that's the joke. You might, you might know him. Uh, anyways, I thought that was funny. But Adam and Eve had sinned, and God, yeah, God had given them a great promise. The first promise 
of a savior. Someone would come and crush the head of the serpent and fix the curse and sin and toil. They had this promise. And we see that some of their descendants, faithful descendants, knew this promise and believed in it and looked and longed for its fulfillment. And that's what Lamech did. He names his son Noah, which means rest, relief. And the scriptures tell us explicitly in Genesis 5.29 that he named his son Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech knew what had happened in Genesis 3, God's cursing and the snake, and he knew that God had promised someone would come to free them from the toil, the pain, the curse. God had promised a a Messiah, and he hoped his son would be that Messiah. Now, of course, we know Noah wasn't the Messiah. Noah didn't bring rest and relief, but Lamech's ardent hope was that God would fix that God would save. And he was trusting in the promises of God he had. And I can't wait to meet Lamech in heaven one day and ask him, you know, what was it like when you first saw Christ as he came down into Sheol after millennia of waiting and you saw the fulfillment of what you hoped your son would be, what you've been waiting for, relief, salvation. It'll be interesting. Lamech will be in heaven. Noah will be in heaven. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... David and more untold, not because they were saved by their works or their faithfulness or because of their ethnicity, but because they were saved by faith in the Messiah to come, just as we are saved by faith in the Messiah who has come. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone has always been God's plan. And while the details of this gospel remained a mystery in total, God wanted his people to know some. He gave them small promises and glimpses to have faith in and he revealed more and more throughout the century just as a the rising sun lightens the sky more and more before the dawn breaks and the shadows flee god progressively revealed more and more to his people and he did this through his prophets as we see in first peter god revealed to moses and david and isaiah and malachi and more bits and pieces as they as peter says searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories the prophets of the old testament knew a messiah was coming and they longed to know more and god answered their prayers and inquiries in part filling the old testament with christ both explicitly and implicitly as we go through the old testament in my ninth grade class uh, we focus on two categories that show Christ in the Old Testament. We call these promises and patterns. Promises are usually more identifiable through easier. Uh, These are covenants and prophecies where God promises and foretells details of the Messiah. Christmas is going to be here before we know it. It's coming up soon, and we'll soon be reading and singing many of these promises, uh, specifically relating to Christ's birth and incarnation. We'll sing and read about Emmanuel, God with us, from the house of David, born in David's town, uh, born of a virgin, that he be mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counsel, everlasting father, that he be a prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, a king like David, that he be pierced for our 
iniquities and crushed for our transgressions, that he would die and rise again and reign forever at the right hand of God, that he would usher in peace and prosperity and goodwill between God and man, that the increase of his government and peace would have no end and people from all nations and families would be blessed in him, and through him, good, uh, and through him God would give us relief from the labor of our hands and make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. These details, I just said, are, are, are found in Isaiah and Malachi, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Samuel, and more. And these are just a small snippet of what the Old Testament promises of Christ. And there's more. We can think of God's promise to Adam and Eve, as we've already mentioned, that the one that Lamech hoped in, that someone would come and crush Satan's head and undo the curse. We can think of God's promise to Abraham, that the, uh, the gospel preached beforehand, as Paul said, that through Abraham's line, blessing would flow to all nations. We can think of God's promise to David, that one of his descendants would dwell on his throne forever and rule the earth and make his people dwell securely. We can think of God's promise of a new covenant, where all those in the covenant will know the Lord and walk in his ways, and God would forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more, and on and on and on it goes. There are all these promises and prophecies, and not only those, there's patterns. The Old Testament is filled with types and shadows that painted a picture of who Christ would be and what he would do. God uses various people and places and things to act as foretastes of the coming Messiah. There are many of these as we go through in the Old Testament, uh, from the beginning to the end of it. There was a man of God, a man called by God who left all the comforts and familiarity of his home to go into a land as a stranger, a man full of faith and trust in God, a man who was promised that blessing would come through him. Tell me, who does Abraham look like? You can think of Abraham, you can think of Melchizedek, king of peace, king of righteousness, a priest of the most high God who met Abraham, brought out bread and wine for a priestly meal. Just as Christ brings out bread and wine, the true king of peace, the true king of righteousness. Think of Isaac, the son of promise, who's had a miraculous birth, his father's only begotten son who was called up a mountain near Jerusalem to be offered up as a sacrifice, carrying his own wood up the cross, uh, up the mountain, silent as his father prepared to sacrifice him. Isaac, who's to be offered up for that the father's love would be known and shown. We can think of Sam, uh, Samson, set apart from the Lord, to the Lord from the womb, full of the spirit and power and might, and who's betrayed by a traitor for silver, sold to his enemies, bound and tortured, who in his final moments had his arms out and destroyed God's enemies through his death. Over and over and over again, there's various people, there's sacrifices, there's miracles and prophets and kings and children and events and pronouncements and so, so much more. To the point where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. As we read through the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament were prophets of Christ, bearing witness to him, speaking of him, seeing him by faith. 
in relaying these promises and patterns of the Messiah to his God's people, helping him know what to believe in and what the Messiah would do, helping us to know as well, deepening our understanding of what Christ's work was and what he did and what to think of him. So salvation by faith through grace alone has always been God's plan. The prophets of the Old Testament are Christ's prophets filled with, as Peter says, the spirit of Christ to testify to him. So what should our relationship be with these books? Well, Peter tells us, going on to the end of the passage, he says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets serve us. The Old Testament is for you. It's a gift with a big bow from our fathers in ancient years to you today. It's for you and your children and as many as the Lord will call to himself. Or as Paul says in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Or again, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, that uh, Timothy from his childhood had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he's talking there of the Old Testament. He's talking there of these books, Genesis to Malachi. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The Old Testament's purpose is for our instruction, our endurance, our hope. We are to pay attention to it. It makes us wise for salvation. It's for our teaching and correction. That we might be equipped for every good work. And Peter's going to do that in just another verse in First Peter 1.16. He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we're going to talk about that next week. But he takes this verse from Exodus and uses that to charge the church in his day and our day to obey that scripture. But one might say, and people have, well, isn't that to Israel and from Moses? What does Sinai have to do with Huntsville? And what does Moses have to do with me? And the answer is, well, everything. These are your books. They are written to you. Of course, they were written to specific people, specific times, but they're also just as much written to you and me. God writes to Israel, and we're tempted to think, well, that was then and this is now, but we are the Israel of God, as Paul says, and God does not change. And so our job is to read the scriptures as Christian scripture, written to believers throughout all times and places. And so as we read the Old Testament, its purpose is to guide us in our life and in our worship. Again, in my ninth grade class, we'll start discussing the law soon. And I love uh, talking about the law with ninth graders. It's, it's a very interesting and fun thing. And one of the things we talk about is how do Christians today relate to the Mosaic law? Now, obviously, we know that it convicts us of sin and shows us our need of a Savior, that we're not under the law anymore, we're under Christ. But it also guides us in good works. It reveals what God finds pleasing. There are lots of laws about animals, theft, property, assault, sexual immorality, and more that spell out God's will for his people. And while it is bound to that culture, those scriptures are our scriptures too. And as such, we can take them and say, God's will in these situations was this, 
what can I learn from this? How am I to apply this in my life, in my community, community, in my nation? For instance, one of my favorite laws is the law requiring Israelite houses to have a fence around the roof of their house. It's an interesting little law. And, of course, the question I ask the kids is, do we have to have fences around our roofs? The answer is, no, we don't have to. But Israelites would, spin, would hang out on their roofs at times, and people were want to fall off. People would fall off, and they get hurt and die. And God, So God says, make sure your property doesn't hurt others. God wants to preserve life. He loves life, and he wants civil laws that protect and preserve life and limb. And so while we're free from the particularities of this law, we might say an application would be, if you get in your car and your brakes aren't working, don't drive your car. Make sure your car is kept up and functioning as Christians. Because if you don't, your property can hurt or even kill someone else. And God doesn't want that. He's told us in his law he doesn't want that. You might say, well, that's common sense. And some of it is to an extent, but unfortunately you may or may not realize this, but common sense isn't always that common. And sin is incredibly deceitful. On top of that, really, it's only common sense because we live in a culture that's been shaped by these principles from the Old Testament for centuries. And as we lose that, we'll find more and more what's common sense stands in stark contrast to God's law and the principles therein that ought to guide us in our lives. God did not leave us without an authoritative word on how to live and move and have our being in this world. He doesn't leave us wondering, what does God want us to do in this scenario? He gives us his whole word, including the Old Testament, to equip us for every good work. And that's just the law. Why are you suffering? Well, consider Job or the story of Joseph in Genesis. Are you wanting to know how to live in a culture that's increasingly unmoored from God's law and engaged in idolatry and hostility against the faith? Well, consider the book of Judges. Or the book of Nehemiah, as we're reading through it now. Are you wanting practical lessons on how to live life and be wise? Read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Are you rejoicing in God's goodness and power? Sing psalms. And on and on and on. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that we might be equipped for every good work. And while there are differences between the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament and the reality of Christ in the New, as Christians... We are to read and be guided by both. In conclusions, one of the best things you can do as Christians is to start reading the Old Testament as a Christian. Look for Christ's, Christ the prophets diligently searched for. Let his principles and lessons shape us and, and inform our lives and thoughts and actions. Be like the prophets themselves and search and inquire diligently to find Christ in the pages of the scriptures and long to look into these things that angels themselves long to look into let's pray together father we thank you so much for your word we thank you that you did not leave us without a light without a guide that you came and spoke through your prophets and apostles and revealed yourself to them and to us and that you have preserved your word for us to read and to have we pray lord that we would be people of the book lord that we would delight in your law and your word lord by your holy spirit work that more and more into our hearts Forgive us, Lord, for when our passion has been waning, when we've become used to uh, what seems boring and mundane. Lord, renew 
our wonder. Renew our joy at this scripture you've given us. We ask that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen.